This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcast at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hello, this is uh, Lynn of Lynn and Jen. Let's talk about sex, and this is one of our regular uh, discussions, conversations today. And today we're back on topic really with uh, gender issues and how they reflect in our personal relationships at home, taking care of our children and our families and our partners and their situations and also our work. Um, We were stimulated to revisit this topic uh, because of a very good article that came out in the New York Times uh, about the balance between uh, women in medicine, uh, both at work and in their home lives. Uh, You took a look at that article too, Jen, right? Yeah, it was so funny that you mentioned bringing this article as the one to discuss because I had read it on my own as well. And I think it brings up a lot of really important and current issues. I think relevant maybe is a better word. I think too, what was so interesting for me is that this week in particular, I've found in my practice is a very challenging time of year because there are so many clients wanting to come in before the holidays. A lot of us do take off during the holidays so that we can spend time with our families. So talking about that work-life balance and just talking to a lot of my female colleagues, they have a very similar experience. And we ourselves are, are facing this because this week we're trying to balance, you're going on a holiday trip and I have a whole number of children and grandchildren one grandchild, but many children, you know, returning home and children's partners and things. So trying to plan presents and gifts and just good communication for everyone. It's a big job thrown in with all of our our patients and that we're working with to really help them in the same situations. Well, you mentioned that it's really kind of a dual role kind of caretaking because our professions are a caretaking profession. And then in our lives, we are also functioning as that caretaking role. And that's really what the author of this article was talking about. And that is a a doctor. I'm not sure if he's a doctor, but I think he is Dr. Drev Kular, uh, who was a, a male doctor. But saw really the imbalance that women physicians are really facing. And I don't think women physicians are alone in this. Professional women and working women everywhere have a greater number of hours in the home part of their lives. And uh, what uh, the doctor uh, noted really was that women spend nine more hours in at the home front than their respective partners do. Uh, in terms of child care, family care, home care, all of those other uh, areas. And I remember back to the work of uh, Arlene Hochstall, who wrote an amazing number of books about this area. Um, 30 years ago, there was a 18-hour difference. So right now, we're down to nine. 
but uh, women physicians work 80 hours a week on average. So you add the 80 plus the nine and you have an exhausted and burned out individual. Right. And so you're just not able to be fully present in the same way. It's very challenging. I mean, I find myself even this morning (laughs) feeling a little bit of it because, you know, I've seen, I think already like 15 clients on top of the other work that I've been doing and everyone is stressed out. And so it's hard to not carry that with you sometimes. During these weeks, because I've had them uh, for a lot of years, this may be my 40th or 42nd year of actually working in this capacity, I try to make sure that I get the exercise that I need. You know, there's minimal things you have to attend to. Sleep, exercise, eating are really important so that you don't get sick on top of the other, you know, overwork aspects of this. So that's just kind of some uh, minimal personal advice, but I really, really try to not get sick during this period because that's, I think, the upshot for a lot of women. And the article pointed out that women physicians have much higher rates of depression and much higher rates of, of suicide, which I found particularly upsetting. I mean, I think anytime we hear about suicide, it's incredibly upsetting. I think what's hard about this particular group of women, too, is that I think what I notice is that there is sometimes a lack of empathy for the experiences they go through because of them being women doctors, which is still seen as a very prestigious field. I think other women who have very similar experiences but don't have that same level of prestige, there is sort of infighting that happens. And you bring up, I think, a very important point. When I became a doctor, you know, 40, 45 years ago, I really thought, um, you know, I saw myself as having great opportunity that other women did not have. And I felt honored, really, to be in that role, Um, you know, but working, beginning working at 120 hours per week and then seeing it slowly decrease over time you know, made me realize that, uh, you know, you you pay, women doctors pay for that privilege. They pay for that status, really with their health and a range of other aspects. I think what's been particularly sad for me is one of my daughters, and we talked about it on the, on, with our listeners, is a doctor. And uh, my sister-in-law is also a doctor. And uh, watching them, they both have young children, you know, a year to two years of age, and watching them go through this, working, leading the rounds, you know, working more than 80 hours a week with their young children has been, in a way, it's heartbreaking for me, but I actually see the toll that it takes. And yes, their status, they're both doctors, but at the same time, the quality of their lives, the experience and the exhaustion level that they endure is tremendous. Oh, absolutely. And it doesn't exclude the fact that they are going through that experience. I mean, I think we all really have to come together and see, even if we are in different statuses, that we have these problems and the problem, the root of the problem itself is universal. Yeah. And the balance, you know, for women everywhere, really having these added hours on the home front, um, it's uh, really, really difficult, I think, for all women. So I think understanding and being able to empathize with other women's situations is really important. 
And I think it's hard too, because the other thing that I see is it can be hard to reach out to other people when we are that exhausted. You kind of just want to sleep all day and recover. And so then you're not having the support network and you do end up having, I think, a lot more of that depression and suicidal feelings. And you're not even having the resources to be able to connect yourself and take care of yourself that way. And I know you know, in the article it mentions too, but the idea of we all know as doctors that we need to take care of ourselves in order to take care of other people. But it becomes a struggle when the way the way the system is organized really doesn't support both of those things being possible. I think too, medicine is is long been known to be a male hierarchy. Right. It really provides less career success for women. They're paid less. They advance less in academic situations and medical centers. Um, There's a whole range of situations that affect women. And women do more caretaking hours with patients. So I think being aware of that for the public to really be aware of the sacrifices that women are making. But I do see it. You know, I've supervised hundreds of women doctors and just watch their level of exhaustion. Um, women have to be able to take cap naps. They have to be able to say, I've done enough for that patient at this time. Um, I need to take care of myself in order to take care of others, just what you're saying, Jennifer. I think that's very, very hard, really, for women to say, not only in medicine, but throughout all professions, really. I agree. And I think, to be honest, that was one of the reasons I chose not to be a woman doctor, because I didn't want to have to make that struggle. And I have a lot of doctors in my family. And I saw the way that the family and work balance was just such a challenge. And, and I chose not to take that path. Yeah. Do you feel at this point, you're still young. Do you feel good about that, about making that choice? Sir? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it does. I think give more flexibility to not make a choice like that where you are consciously aware that you're going to be involved in a caretaking profession that takes those number of hours. And you, we've shared uh, that we love children and you want to have a family. And and that's that's a really hard thing to balance in. I mean, other things that I think helps professional women is to get enough to fight in your relationship for money and coverage and people to really provide the support you need. You know, because when you see yourself going down, becoming depressed, becoming exhausted, becoming irritable, you know, your primary relationship suffers, your parenting abilities suffer, and your ability really to be there for yourself suffers. I mean, there's a lot of suffering there, and I think it's really unfortunate that we don't have a system that supports that, because I really would love to have a system that recognized that you can be a doctor in this way and also be a wonderful, you know, whatever role you want to be, wife, partner, mother, you know, I think we really need to figure out what are those systems in place, because Medicine has long been, I think, a really challenging area, one, because it's male-dominated, but also because, I mean, people don't get sick on a schedule, you know, (laughs) so you have to have people available to work, and EMTs do it. It's definitely not the only profession, but I think that's always been a long struggle where 
you know, even me as a therapist working my relatively flexible hours, because I work with families, I often work until 8pm at night. And it just these, these balances are very hard to achieve, I think. And this is true of, of all caregiving professions, yeah. really, that there's this added time on, you know, you mentioned those, those uh, sicknesses that occur at all times. Um, it's funny, they do. And they take you away sometimes from your kids at right. Christmas Day. And um, generally, you know, I've had that experience many times. And I think wanting to connect with the patient and provide the care is really important. I remember those days actually really kind of special in a special way. And uh, I know it's special to be able to provide care, you know, in hospital settings and with patients during the holidays. And it really means a lot to me to be able to do that personally. But it is a loss, you know, and I think about my children's experience, really, of me not being there. And now they're involved in caretaking professions, and they have to juggle it, too. And it's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. And so I don't think it's really about blaming one person or the other, but it's really about what can we do here to help women and men who want to have more of this balance so that it isn't just falling on one person and it's not just exhausting all these person's resources, because I think that's a loss for not just the women, but for everybody. Yeah. Um, what I did was generally try to set up supports, you know, for the times that I would be in those situations. I also took my children with me to the hospital, you know, which is not something they allow in current days, but um, you know, there are, so there are fewer doctors' children kind of sitting at the nurse's desk and accompanying them. But that used to be part of what happened because there really wasn't other opportunities. And this is something I look back on. I think, was this the best choice? And, you know, but maybe this was the only choice I had at that particular time. And I think a lot of women, you know, their children are there in the background with them. I still see a lot of patients, you know, where the kids are sitting in their mom's offices waiting for their mom to finish work. And um, again, this gets back to our society. I very strongly believe that there should be teen care and child care of good quality available after school and on holidays for all parents. I think it's really, really important. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to have those supports in in terms of a societal structure that says, look, we need these resources and they need to be high quality. And I think it is what I've noticed is in the interim, a lot of people create their own personal versions of those networks. And so, you know, maybe you take off this time to watch the kid, but next time, you know, your neighbor or a, a colleague of yours, you kind of take turns watching over the kids so that when that person is working, they don't have to worry about what's happening with their child. Yeah. And as we talk, I, I realized, you know, my daughter lives, you know, a significant drive away. And I make that drive in a couple hours, basically two hours to get there, two and a half. But I make that drive, you know, every other week because I want to be available and be there with my grandchild and support her in that sense. A lot of grandmothers are out there doing that. They're really trying to be available, and many of them, like me, and are, are still working. 
So that's a, a group out there that I think could support each other. I could reach out and maybe support some of the younger women in my neighborhood with their situation too, because I do have some energy to do that. And I think we could role model and support each other better in this area. I mean, I think that's part of it too, from what I see is when you're so exhausted, it's hard to make these connections. So that's why, you know, I think about um, an example is certain colleges that I know of for grad school programs, they know that around that age, people are going to want to have children. And so they have programs in place that provide childcare. And for a lot of them, the grad students are males. And so they have these programs for the wives of these grad students where they help the women build a bond and build a community with each other so that they don't feel so alone in raising the child. And you're talking about the wives of the male students having these facilities for the women, you know, grad students. You're in grad school and you really need that coverage. You can't write that paper right. without your child being covered. You can't finish that degree. You really need experience. And, you know, family members can provide some, but they become stretched thin. So we really have to reach out and develop that community and make that a priority. You know, uh, if I could recommend one change, it'd be really in how this country sees child care. Well, child care is a whole large subject that definitely, yeah. I think, requires a, a huge shift. I think the other thing is really figuring out on a more localized level, how do you provide those services? And I think one of the other things that people have to do is they have to hire more doctors. They have to, instead of asking them to work 80 hours a week, you have to hire more doctors. You have to hire more people to work so that you aren't being, the expectation isn't, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. I have to then work 80 hours a week. Yeah. And you see the additional burden during the last 20 years of medicine has been the increased charting. And you and I oh both God, yeah. struggle with that. And that adds on extra hours. You know, you learn to do your charting while you're listening to podcasts. You learn to do your charting while you're watching television. You learn to do your charting while you're sitting at your kids, you know, sports games. It's it's there, you know, and it has to be done. So adding on all of this, you know, there have got to be ways to really make this job more tenable and, and make it workable for women. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of different solutions. I think if we can rally together and really say, I've done this, I've tried this, you know, what is something you listening right now? What is something you've done? Because I imagine that you struggle with work-life balance too, because it's something that it seems all women struggle with. As a last uh, thought with this, I think one of the things that I've seen work most successfully uh, for my daughter, she's teamed up with another uh, family where there's a woman physician and they kind of co-nanny and they share some of the responsibilities that way. And it offers a kind of support group, support network, that system. I think that's a very good idea. The idea that you work together and unite and recognize that others are really struggling with some of the same burdens that you are. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an issue like many of the things that we're struggling with that has to be tackled on many ends. And I think the more 
we can try to come up with very systematic things that people can implement. I think that's going to, those small gains are going to make a really big difference. Well, you've got a lot of great ideas about this, Jen. I hope someday we're working together to support your network in this family area too. So, Well, I think it's already happening. I mean, one other thing that we haven't addressed that I think is really important to address is the inherent bias. I know a lot of women doctors feel that they are somewhat of a token where instead of being seen as just this woman doctor or ideally just this doctor, it's really, you know, if I have a bad experience with this one woman doctor, I'm just never going to go to another woman doctor. And, and so then you carry a lot of that weight. Well, what the article talks about is the bias is externalized with women. You have a bad male surgeon, you don't think all male surgeons are bad. But if you have a bad woman doctor, then you really, you impart that value to all women physicians. Um, I think also the bias often is because you are a token, your uh, credibility is doubted really as a woman physician. And it's not just with the bias if you make a mistake, but, you know, they, uh, the, the patients would say to me frequently when I was younger, and I mean by younger, under 60, uh, that uh, they would really question whether or not I was capable of handling their case. It was almost automatic. There is some transformation that takes place as you begin to look older and you're not questioned from that perspective. And uh, there are no studies that have been done on this, but I would wonder where the transition point is for women. Is it at 50, 60? I think when many male doctors put on their white coat, they're 32 years old, right away, the credibility goes with them. So this transition with women is something that really needs more study. So it's really a questioning of your knowledge then in, in what you're saying, because if it's related to your appearance and looking older, it's sort of assumed you're older. Finally, mm -hmm. you must have this knowledge, it sounds like. Right. And I think it gets at the bias that young women are degraded in many ways. They're, you know, their knowledge, their responsibility, their education, everything that they've worked for, they have to keep on a, in a daily basis, really standing up for. And women are seen as less credible. And uh, this is a, it's a very sad reflection, and it makes the work more exhausting and depleting. Well, it gets in the way of the work, because instead of being able to just do your job and engage in the work, you're sort of having to defend your ability or your credibility to do the job. Absolutely. And there are different strategies for this. I mean, I counsel young women doctors to look responsible and professional, and they do. And many look older than they really are. They try to look older for this very reason that we're talking about, you know, wearing glasses and no makeup and, you know, letting every gray hair show and maybe even cultivating a few. But I don't think that's that solves the problem. I think it really is looking at 
women and men who bear knowledge and are engaging in this work in an equal manner. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting. As you were talking about that, I was thinking about me starting out as a therapist. I'm Asian. I look younger than I am (laughs) in general. And then also um, just being very new at the job. I remember feeling like I had to really look older and I didn't even really know what that meant. It sort of meant me wearing black suits, I guess, you know, (laughs) which is like very not me at all. But, you know, I think that idea of, yeah, you know, why is it that we tie in the age and the appearance with the credibility of the knowledge? It's very and biased in that way. And why does that factor play such a large role with women right. and not with men? Right. You know, and I, I think it gets back again to women are seen as objects. You know, that's a primary function. And when a woman doctor walks into that room, you know, the mind flashes object at least in part, you know, instead of here is a responsible physician really embarking on trying to help me, you know, so it's very different uh, assessment. Um, uh, At times in the hospital, I had an all-female team of five or six female doctors that I headed and was part of, and um, it was even then you saw a really definite distinction The women were seen as uh, objects. They were given objectified names, our team. We had to fight that. Yeah, you know, so this is is there in medicine. It really is. And uh, again, you know, as we age, certainly things shift a bit there. Women are seen as as less objectified. But the whole process really needs to be reexamined. And it is exhausting you know, to have to fight for credibility at work and then do those long hours at home and at work, you know, and it leads to things like depression and probably suicidal feelings. Yeah, I mean, it was so interesting, too, because until I read this, I knew definitely there were high rates of depression, but I didn't know that the rates for suicide were so high. And I think, again, that just speaks to we we need these systems, we need to be more connected, and we need to support each other, because these types of things often happen through the isolation. They do. And women physicians feel more isolated. I can say that from my own experience, you know, it's partly the field. Um, It's the, you know, the status itself, um, the envy of other women who maybe don't recognize what women physicians are struggling with. And, you know, again, I would say women need to open up and share these stories and and share strategies. How do you deal with work weeks like this? How do you change work weeks like this? Yeah, so I hope that the conversation that we're engaging in is helping you, our listener, really think about some of these things in your life. And hopefully it inspires you to reach out to some of the women in your lives and come up with some solutions. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Jen. Come on. That's what I said.